0: Hi everyone and welcome to the Deliciously Ella podcast with me Ella Mills. I'm very sorry to say that my co-host Matthew Mills is not here today. He's having customer meetings about new products that we're doing, which is very exciting, but he is sorry to miss episode one of season five. So we are back, we're back online and we're going to be jumping straight back in talking about anything and everything related to our health and happiness. So for anyone that's new to the podcast, each week we pick a topic from the wellness space that we think matters and that can hopefully make a tangible difference in all of our lives. And today's episode feels like the perfect place to start with that. We all know that our mental well-being is important. It's such a huge part of conversation today and something that really does matter to us all. And yet it's something that we seem to really be struggling with. One in 10 children in the UK right now have a diagnosable mental health condition. 47% of visits to a GP involve mental health concerns. The leading cause of disability around the world isn't diabetes or heart disease, it's depression. And 10 years from now, depression won't just be the leading cause of disability, it'll also be the leading cause of global disease burden, which is a measure of how much an illness affects quality of life, life expectancy, and the economy. As it stands, rates of depression and suicide in young people have also risen faster in the last 15 years than at any point since records began. As our guest today, Kimberly Wilson says, something is profoundly wrong. Kimberly is a psychologist who began her career working in one of Europe's largest female prisons. She's passionate about brain health and, most importantly, focusing on the preventative side of this. So, welcome, Kimberly. Thank you so much. I love your book. So, I'm kind of like <laughs> buzzing. I'm really happy to be back. I've got a fire in my belly. Your book made me like equal parts, really excited and passionate and that kind of fire, but also mm. pretty angry,
1: actually, and a bit upset. Okay, angry why? What, what you were you angry about?
0: well I think there's just this sense and as you say there's there's so much information you know the science is there Mm. but the science isn't being translated to the public and mental well-being and whether that's depression or it's anxiety or it's Alzheimer's or it's dementia you know this is a Mm. huge area it's something that affects us all whether it's us personally or our close friends and family, colleagues you know it's a really huge thing and it's something that feels like we're really lacking the tools and the information to be able to do things with it. Yeah. And I think that
1: that's what felt upsetting. Good, kind of. <laughs> I think that's what I wanted to emphasise. What I really wanted to get across with the book is the urgency of this all but also the way that even though we talk about you know we've got a big mental health conversation going on and everyone's talking about it yet there's this wealth of information and research about the things that people can do every day that can make an impact and improve their quality of life and potentially protect their long-term brain health that just isn't being translated or or put across to the public and I kind of think it's a bit outrageous right that we have all of these public health campaigns around cancer around diabetes diabetes, of course, fantastic, we need those. But when our biggest killers and our biggest sources of disease and disability are issues related to brain health or mental health, where is the public health campaign for that? And I, it makes me mad. And I kind mm-hmm. of, I wanted to convey that sense of urgency and importance and value to, to the readers.
0: And because that's literally my first question, and I hope you don't mind, but I've taken a little extract from the book that I really wanted to start with, because mm. I feel like it almost feels like a silly question saying, can you have a healthy brain? Because it's not a question that people ask. And this is, what you wrote which I really liked and that kind of really really resonated I felt hit the nail on the head as you said one of the reasons for the disparity between how mental health conditions are treated in comparison to physical illness is the erroneous belief that they are solely a problem of psychology and not biology it is so important to remember that the brain is an organ just an incredibly complicated one with some very special functions for example we all know that for our heart to work properly we have to look after it by eating well, exercising, avoiding smoking etc. A heart that is not properly cared for will start to show impairments and functions like palpitations and changes in blood pressure we get clues to show that it's struggling and the same is true for the brain a brain that is struggling will begin to show impairments in its functions it just so happens that the brain's functions are mood personality planning decision making information processing and memory and then too many people brush these clues off they see them as incidental or worse something to be ashamed of and ignored Mm. and to me that sums up the whole thing we don't look at our brains like we look at our gut health which is obviously so topical at the Mm -hmm. moment, our heart health, the kind of general functioning of our cardiovascular system and all those sorts of things. We just don't think Mm -hmm. about the brain like that.
1: No, it's this really extraordinary dichotomy, this real separation between the body and the brain. And partly, to be fair, it's the fault of psychology and psychiatry because those professions, our professions, my profession, (laughs) have looked at it like that. You know, so when something's gone wrong in your brain, we kind of look at you and say, "Okay, well, maybe it's something to do with what happened to you in the past. Or maybe it's something to do with the stress you're experiencing now. Or maybe it's just chemicals um, that have gone wrong in your brain, but only from the neck up. Mm. And we completely, or certainly historically up to this point, or up until very recently, have ignored the fact that your neurotransmitters require essential nutrients that you can only get from your diet. Your brain cells are actually made up of essential fats that you can only get from your diet. That The chemicals that kind of slosh around in your bloodstream, some of them can cross over into the brain and cause reactions in the brain that can then trigger different responses in symptoms. And so, yeah, so the symptoms of your heart being unhappy we understand as an issue of function and so we should address the brain in the same way we should go hmm this is a very complex organ what are its functions okay if those functions are going wrong maybe it's a clue that there's something that this brain needs as a kind of first step right because of course I'm a psychologist you know trauma and life experience and adverse childhood events and experiences are hugely important But also your brain has these fundamental needs for kind of basic care that are mostly neglected because people just don't know that what the information is or how to access it.
0: So the very reductive answer to Mm. can you have a healthy brain is yes. You can actively kind of go out in your life and do things just like you
1: would to have a healthy heart. Yeah, I think that we can take a preventative, protective approach to the brain in the same way that we can with the body. And we absolutely should be because waiting until a crisis has occurred, waiting until something has gone wrong, is so much more difficult when you're dealing with mental health concerns because by that point, the disorder, the illness, the condition is much more entrenched. It's already caused problems in that person's life. People might be struggling financially in their relationships, in their work. You know, it kind of cascades out in a way that Physical things don't as much. And we know that with mental health concerns, the earlier you intervene or the earlier you can start putting those resilience factors in, the better. So before we get into kind of what is
0: in our power and what mm. we can look to do, I just wanted to touch on the why a bit, mm. a bit more about kind of. As we said at the beginning, like brain health is such a complicated thing, obviously, and there are so many different things that can arise from depression to Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And I was really struck by one study you mentioned that 42% of adults in the UK say that dementia is the disease Mm -hmm. that they fear the most. Yet only 1% of them could name the seven risk factors associated with that disease. So I just wanted to kind of get a little bit deeper into that because I think Mm. it is a disease we read a lot about in the press at the moment. It's a real challenge for the NHS. It's a huge challenge for all the families involved and it's obviously Mm. something that people fear a lot. And yet, of course, there's no like magic answer. But again, what we're saying is for these sorts of things, there
1: are possibly preventative things that can help some people. Mm. Yeah. So 70% of people in care homes in the UK have a diagnosis of dementia, right? So there's a huge social care burden. But actually, most of the actual social care is being done by families. So dementia has this enormous burden of kind of financial, familial burden of needing for support and care, as well as you know the impact on the person's loss of life and the loss of their relationships and and all of those things. Yet, as I say, there there isn't this kind of public health campaign, this public awareness campaign for the brain or brain health but a big Lancet commission that was published in two thousand and seventeen showed that if people took the best case scenario preventative steps and it's you know it's really best case scenario kind of pristine lifestyles but if people did that, then we could prevent up to of global Alzheimer's disease cases. So it's one in three cases that works out to about 15 million people. And that's a big deal, right? If I told you we could prevent a third of cancer cases, people would be kind of shouting it from the rooftops. They'd be Mm. saying, well, this is what you need to do. Get on top of it. All these people will be ticking it off. Yet here's an international study by some of the best scientists in the world saying there are things we can do no there's no magic bullet there's no promises we're not saying you can 100% prevent it but you can absolutely shift the odds in your favor if you can get these factors into your life as early as possible and kind of set up what I call a brain healthy lifestyle to kind of really protect your brain for the long term. What you mentioned that was interesting is that we've had effective
0: drug treatments for depression since the late 1950s, and yet it's still such a huge and growing global issue. And at the moment, we're treating it with antidepressants and or talking therapy Mm -hmm. but it's just not proving to be as effective or as accessible as it really needs to be and then as the number of people being diagnosed has grown so has the number of prescriptions and yet more than half of the people taking antidepressants at least in this country still say they have ongoing symptoms so it feels again like
1: we're not kind of getting to where we want to be. We're really not and so if we've had 50, 60, 70 years of of effective treatments, then we would expect better response rates. And what this has done, what kind of looking at the pretty poor outcomes or certainly not as good as we would want them to be outcomes for people with depression and what's called treatment-resistant depression, which is when you've tried two, three, four, five of the main uh, medications and not got any response or still had residual symptoms, then what it drives us to is to rethink our original hypothesis of what causes depression. And I think one of the main things to say is depression, of course, isn't just one unitary disease. I think that's Mm. one of the issues. People say, oh, depression, and think it's just one thing. But I think we need to understand that psychological disorders may look the same from the outside. People might have low mood, they might have social withdrawal, they might have poor sleep, they might have kind of changes in appetite but the drivers or the causes of it might be different. One of the biggest problems that we have in, in tackling depression is that when you go to your GP, and mostly because GPs either aren't trained to properly assess for depression or simply do not have the time, that their main concern is, are you depressed or not? Right? It's a kind of very binary, sick or not kind of response. What it means, though, is that People are given a kind of one-size-fits-all treatment that isn't really focused on what might be causing that person's problem. And it might not be a chemical or neurological thing at all. It might simply be someone's massively overburdened with worries and what they need is a social worker or, you know, a therapist or just better social support. But if we don't understand the causes, we're never going to get the effective treatments that people need and deserve. And so the causes are a mixture of kind of psychological factors
0: and environmental mm. factors then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we know, for example, that there are lots of early life experiences and even pre-birth experiences that can contribute, right? So there are genetic risk factors are associated with depression and if you have a family history of depression then you have higher odds of experiencing it yourself but also interuterine nutrition so what a mother eats or what a father eats preconception and how their physical health is can affect brain development and then exposure of hormones in the uterus during pregnancy what the birth was like early nutrition all of these things so there's a whole bunch of things that you know, perhaps we don't have a a full understanding of or control over. But then there are those those early life experiences. So again, uh, infant nutrition, temperament sometimes. So all children are born with a different temperament and some children are going to have a more natural internal resilience and some are going to be a little bit more sensitive or a little bit more vulnerable. But then also those social experiences. So did you have a warm, loving home environment? Did you have your own sense of agency? Did you have good peer relationships growing up? Did you feel respected? Did you have the skills to understand your emotional worlds? Did you feel safe? All of those things. And then those other social factors like, are you a member of a marginalized group? Or um, what's your socioeconomic status? Or did you experience a particular trauma in your life? How was that process? How was it managed? So there's and, and they can be combinations of these yeah, things of as well, right? So there's these huge factors. And that's why it's so, so, so essential. I'm always banging on about the importance of assessment, but really helping people to understand that there are a range of causes for these disorders. They might need a range of treatments. And of course, think about prevention and protection and helping people look after themselves before a crisis hits.
0: So when it comes to prevention,
1: mm. what is it that sits
0: in our power? I mean, there's a mm-hmm. few kind of seems like sort of key things like stress, sleep,
1: nutrition, exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess much of it, I guess, could be boiled down to, in some form to stress, whether that's a physiological stressor or psychological stressor um, that... T- there are profound ways in which stress affects the brain. Um, so the, the, the area of the brain that I, that I personally care about the most is the hippocampus. And it's this kind of central area for memory. It has some kind of modulatory um, functions as well. But mostly it's about memory and learning and memory consolidation. And the hippocampus, though, is also really full of these receptors for stress hormones. Overwhelming stress or stress over a long period of time can overwhelm the hippocampus and start to cause damage to it. In fact, there was a a paper published just this week showing that one week, so they, they took... Over 100 healthy young people, I think they were aged between kind of 18 and 22, um, healthy, normal weight, you know, no psychological concerns. And they put them on a Western diet for a week. And within that week, they showed impairments in their hippocampal memory. So there was kind of this early damage to the hippocampus. So we know that a nutritionally Poor diet can confer this kind of stress to the brain. Um, we know that the the chemicals that are released. And produced by your body during exercise are protective, can help reduce stress, both physiological and psychological. So exercise is a really important one. Good nutrition is a really important one. Sleep is hugely important, right? Um, And that's largely because when you're in deep sleep, your brain is able to clear out the kind of accumulated debris of the day, which is a physical stressor in the brain. So Mm -hmm. your brain has the opportunity to clear all of that out. So those are some kind of key ones. And one of the ones that I really want people to understand is, is emotional management as well. Because, again, I think people are very dismissive of emotions and they kind of think, they just turn up and they're just a hassle. And But if I were to sit down with someone and do a psychological assessment, if I was going to sit down with someone and say, OK, let's see whether you're psychologically well, what a psychologist or psycholo- psychiatrist looks for is... Are you responding emotionally appropriately in that moment? Are you laughing in the right places? Are you expressing sadness in the right places? Is your emotional response appropriate to the questions that I'm asking? So actually your emotions are our main kind of source of information if with the thinking about psychological wellness, right? Depression is about consistent feelings of sadness uh, anxiety consistent feelings of worry and nervousness so actually emotions are our core psychological um, concern but people are really dismissive of them they think they're less important than thinking or reason or decision making and um, so in the book I've really I've kind of dedicated a good amount of space to helping people understand what emotions are that they have a function and that just just, they don't just turn up randomly um so what they are how you can understand them and how you can manage them day to day because we know that kind of chronic emotional stress is another form of stress for the brain and that that is associated with poorer health outcomes kind of throughout your life so can we get a bit deeper into that so what
0: (laughs) can you answer those three questions (laughs) like why why do they come up what do they mean sure
1: so the ones that i featured in the book um i call kind of the big 5 and they are the ones that in my clinical practice people seem to struggle with the most so that's anger mm-hmm. um envy and jealousy and shame and guilt so they're the kind of painful, sticky, awkward, difficult emotions. And I think one of the main things to understand about all of them is that they serve a very important survival function for us all, a survival and a social function. And there've been lots of kind of international studies that have looked at what that function might be and why it's so important. So um, anger For example, I meet lots of people who say, oh, there's no point in being angry or hate being angry. I feel like I'm out of control. You know, it's embarrassing. And what I try to convey is actually anger is one of your, I call it your self-esteem emotion because The capacity to be angry really says something about your ability to value yourself, because what anger is a signal of is injustice. Right. If you think about the times when you get angry, it's usually when someone has treated you unfairly or you've witnessed something unfair. So maybe you've seen someone shouting at someone in the street or um, I don't know, someone cuts in front of you in in the queue like even if it's a tiny kind of hint of anger like that mm. it's still a kind of huh that's that's a bit out of order that's a bit unfair so and and the capacity to say that's unfair is the flip side of saying i deserve more or i deserve better I don't deserve to be treated like that. And so what I find is that with people who are constantly suppressing their anger, denying their anger, pushing it away, saying, oh, no, no, I'm fine. I'm not angry. No, 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 I'm fine. Mm. Actually, they end up kind of dismissing themselves quite a lot and underplaying the impact that a certain situation or a relationship or a person has. Is having on them. So anger is really, I think, o- an important emotion. I think particularly for women to get to grips with. Women yeah. don't like to be angry. We're kind of socialised out of anger. Mm. But I think it's really important that a woman can feel kind of empowered and brave enough to know that her anger is legitimate when it's legitimate, right? Um, then... Envy and jealousy are also, I think, quite fun ones. (laughs) I think most people would disagree with me, but I think, again, they're really important. And we, they're not, again, people think that they're quite petty, Mm. but they're really important indicators of our social relationships. So people often confuse envy and jealousy. They use them interchangeably, but actually technically, kind of psychologically, we'd think of them as overlapping but different so envy tends to emerge between two people and jealousy tends to emerge between three or more people okay. so and env- I might kind of envy your trainers or something like that so envy is about my sense of not having or being a quality or trait that somebody else might have whereas jealousy is associated with feelings of exclusion so if you and I are really good friends and then you meet someone new in the office and you guys go off for coffee, I might feel jealous of the two of you going off and leaving me out of it um, because I would be feeling like, oh, I've been left out of that. But in both cases, what that tells me is something about my sense of status and where I fit. And if people can manage that, if they can understand that, if I can say, oh, I'm feeling a bit envious of your trainers what does that say about how I'm feeling about my own status where I am what I'm up to or oh I'm feeling a bit jealous that Ella's off with Sophie and they're having a lovely time what does that mean about my relationship with her and how important that friendship is to me and whether I should feel like I should be investing in it a little bit more then you can use that information to make different choices because I think the thing with these big emotions is if you can't tolerate them, if you don't know how to process them, you end up just pushing them back on the other person. Whereas if I can understand it, if I can process it, then I can take responsibility for it and choose a better, healthier, more effective way of managing that emotion.
0: And then is there, if I'm understanding this correctly Mm. as well, if you let those emotions say just fester and you don't address them and you just kind of push them in, that creates a psychological stress for the brain that ends up being actually more damaging Mm -hmm. to the brain in a more physical
1: sense. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because one of the things I also like to try to get across is that emotions just don't go away because you don't want to experience them. Mm. People can want to distract themselves from them, ignore them, hope that they go away. But the thing with emotions is, A, because they're such important evolutionary signals for us, they will just either stick around kind of in the back of your mind and that will make me miserable, it will interfere with my relationships, it will be a distraction, it will take energy and attention away from things that are more important for me. Or it gets displaced into some sort of other harmful, usually, behaviour. So one of the things I see quite often in alcoholism is an inability to tolerate anger or other big feelings. So people will drink to distract themselves, to shut down their thinking, to give them a different emotional state, right? So when you drink, if you feel euphoric, then that's taking you away from your anger. It hasn't dealt with the cause of your anger, but it's momentarily taking you away from it. So if you can't deal with those emotions. Either they're going to cause a psychological stress or they're going to impair your behavior or your relationships, or they can lead to these other harmful ways of coping. Um, and the final thing that can happen if people can consistently suppress or ignore their emotions is that it can come out in what's called somatic forms, which is in, in physical pain. So, that kind of chronic stress affects the body. And quite often, things like back pain, migraine, headaches, inflammatory concerns can be triggered by the psychological stress of unprocessed or kind of undesirable emotions.
0: Yeah. So, actually understanding your emotions and processing them is a really big deal. It's like
1: it's so important. And it's one of the things that I think gets really overlooked. So, even in the books out there that are about the brain Mm. and protecting brain health and, and mental health. They'll talk about things like nutrition. We've got books about sleep. We've got books about how important fitness is for mental health. But there's less and less about actually how your emotional world and the way that you deal with emotions affects the physical structure and function of your brain.
0: Yeah. And so because I think that's the thing that's interesting is when it comes to this sort of space, there's often a kind of dismissal that overly feeling your feelings. And it's a bit self-indulgent and it's a bit kind of like woo woo. And I feel like as a result, sometimes I think we all suppress them for fear of people's mm. kind of judgment or thinking, yeah, they are overly emotional. Yeah. Especially because there is a stereotype around women as well for being over-emotional and yeah. kind of difficult as a result, which is a shame. <laughs> yeah, not helpful at all. So one of the things you talk about, which I think is interesting as a follow follow-on from this, is building mm. psychological resilience. And it's an interesting one in terms of getting that that probably that balance right Mm. between acknowledging and processing and understanding your emotions but at the same time obviously as you say like one of the universal truths of life is that some pain is inevitable like no one's going to go through their entire life without difficult things Mm. happening to them to the people around them like it's literally impossible to not have loss and challenge Mm. in your life and so how do you strike that balance between building that resilience and also kind of acknowledging and processing and why is the resilience so important
1: Yeah. And I think, again, resilience is a word that can kind of get picked up and slightly misused sometimes. And I think we need to be always really careful that when we say things like resilience, we're not trying to or we don't end up putting the blame on the person who is suffering and saying, oh, well, you're just not resilient enough. Yeah, that's not massively helpful Um, because there are lots of different resilience factors. So like I mentioned earlier on, things like the family you were born into the financial circumstances you were born into, the nutrition you experienced early in your life, you know, the country you were born in, like all of those things will affect what you're exposed to and what your resilience will be. So all of those things are out of your control. So we need to be really sensitive and and um, thoughtful about the way that we use that term. But I think there are things that we can do. Or there are skills and habits and traits that are associated with resilience, which is essentially the capacity to bounce back when something bad happens. Um, and that's there are a few different things. So one one of the big ones is self compassion. And again, I, I work with a lot of kind of um, A type personality professionals, and they can have this belief that it's really important that they're hard on themselves because that's what drives them. That's what creates their ambition and their ability to hit their targets and hit their goals. But actually what we know about people who are hard on themselves is that when things do go wrong, they find it much, much, much harder to bounce back from that. Mm -hmm. Because instead of being able to say, oh, all right, that didn't work out. (laughs) Let's see what else we can do. They're... More wrapped up in self-criticism, like you messed up, you failed. Look how you—you you should have been able to get that. Everybody else can do that, and so they end up being drawn into this spiral of self-condemnation. Whereas someone who can demonstrate a bit of self-compassion is able to say, "Oh well, everyone makes mistakes sometimes. I'm human. That's normal. You know, cut yourself some slack. Let's." carry on and try something else so self compassion is one of the main kind of accessible amenable ways of approving, of improving your resilience and it basically comes down to the idea that we're all human you know we all suffer and if you're a human then you will suffer and you need to cut yourself a bit of slack for that
0: And I think what's fascinating to me is just kind of looking at this, everything we've talked about so far, is how all these things that you'd never think are linked are linked. Mm. So, you know, as you said, like what, you know, the psychological kind of wellness that you're experiencing at any point in your life could have an impact on your brain, which could, you know, then you're not eating well and the rest of it. Mm. And it can all add up and add up and end up possibly impacting you in later life, looking at diseases like dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm. And that, I think, is the kind of crazy... Link that—that's probably what people are struggling with, as as far as I can understand. Yeah. It's like it's so the brain feels so elusive, and then it's so it's so crazy. You know, I think people have a hard enough time understanding that, like, what they put into their body might impact their gut health, mm-hmm. for example. You know, that like a carrot may be more beneficial <laughs> than a crisp. You know, not mm-hmm. to say one you can't have both, but like I think that that's feels Mm. like a stretch enough to think that what you're putting in on a fork you know physically you're already putting that into your body and that feels hard to get your head around how that could impact some diseases and issues and kind of the workings of our of our physical body Mm. but then to wrap that up alongside our emotional health and think that that could genuinely impact our
1: mental health Mm. in all capacity it's it's a it's a big thought Well, one of the biggest risk factors for dementia is loneliness, right? An emotional experience of isolation and separation. And partly that will relate to practical things like if something goes wrong and I don't have someone around me who I can turn to, then I'm going to struggle more, right? Mm -hmm. If I end up with a a big bill that I suddenly have to pay and I can't at least talk to someone about it and have them comfort me, Mm. then I'm going to have to carry the burden of that stress myself, let alone whether they can help me out with paying for it or whatever um but also it's just the stress of being by oneself like humans are social animals we're born into networks we're born into communities and that over in evolutionary terms is how we're meant to be so there's something a bit unnatural to be lonely and to be by yourself and it causes a chronic state of stress and that chronic stress is expressed in these kind of um, neurotoxic compounds that damage the brain. So we know that loneliness is associated with a greater risk of dementia as is depression. So if you've had depression earlier in your life, then that's associated with a higher risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And again, we think that might be associated with the biological response to stress um in your mind that then creates these chemicals that can damage parts of the brain so fundamentally stress in any capacity (laughs) is what we're trying to
0: avoid and how one does that in modern life i have no idea no and you know again
1: we have to be quite practical i think about it um But also about the clever use of stress. So in the book, I talk about the other. So there are three kinds of stress, you know, kind of everyday stress that most people know, whether it's sitting an exam or going for a job interview. Um, Then there's chronic stress, which is when it's not just a one off thing, uh, but you're under pressure all the time. So let's say you have a boss who is kind of constantly on your case, Mm -hmm. asking you questions, and um, that that could be very stressful. Or if you don't get on with your work colleagues, that could be a kind of chronic stressor. But then there's a good form of stress. There's a kind of eustress, we call it EU from the Greek for good, um, which is called hormesis. And that's the kind of stress, which again, is kind of manageable, but that the body and the brain responds to by getting stronger. So a very uh, common example of this Is exercise, right? So when you lift a weight or when you do a press up, you're exerting a little bit of stress on those muscles and your body responds by upregulating all of those compounds to help build more muscle tissue Mm -hmm. and you get stronger. And there are lots of ways in the body and the brain that these positive stressors can help build. Physical resilience. So if we use that analogy again, right? That means that the next time you're faced with this physical stress, you're more able to deal with it. You're more resilient to the physical stress. Yeah. And there are psychological practices that can help that as well. So we know so self-compassion is one of those, but also meditation is one of those. And meditation has been shown to actually help build more brain cells your brain becomes thicker um which is a good thing (laughs) um when you meditate regularly and better connected and thicker and heavier all of these things are good they're associated with better long-term brain health so it becomes another form of and it doesn't feel like a stressor but trying to focus your attention for more than a couple of minutes can be quite effortful in mm. that sense so stress in that sense of so effort. like a sudoku or a crossword or something mm, not really so oh, so we're talking, in meditation mm, yeah. yeah um what we know about brain training at the moment is that it tends to only make you good at those brain training things so doing sudoku or crosswords it doesn't tend to generalize into kind of better brain performance it just makes you better at sudoku and crosswords really so, <laughs> so meditation
0: so meditation mm-hmm. makes your brain better effectively Mm -hmm. but those kind of brain training exercises they don't they just make you like a sudoku whiz yes what we interesting that's so interesting because so many people do that for their brain health
1: but again they wouldn't think meditation's for their Mm -hmm. brain health no exactly but no the evidence at the moment says that those brain training games just make you better at that very specific skill and that the things that generalize are novelty So learning new things, going to a new area, taking a new route home, learning how to dance, you know, learning a new language, meeting new people, all of your brain thrives on novelty. So just doing the same kinds of puzzles isn't really providing the novelty that your brain kind of craves and needs in order to get bigger and stronger and and, and more resilient.
0: And so to kind of start to sum it up, is mm-hmm. there a little like healthy brain checklist? Like, are there some key questions or things that we should all be asking ourselves or looking at or thinking about? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think one of the problems is that people get used to feeling not very great. Yeah. right, And it becomes just very normal to be a bit tired, a bit miserable, maybe a bit tearful all the time. And what people don't really recognize is you shouldn't be feeling like that. That shouldn't be considered normal. Basically, Mm -hmm. like don't consider feeling a bit rubbish as your everyday state of of baseline. And so I, I guess a checklist would be about that consistency. Am I waking up feeling unrefreshed? Am I going through most of my day wondering when I can just get back into bed? Am I kind of counting down the minutes of my life? Like that's, that's not a life well lived. Mm. You deserve better than that. You deserve more than that. You deserve to feel excited and connected and enthusiastic. And when your brain and I suppose your life is fulfilled, then those are the things you'll be feeling. Um, And so in the book, I do have this kind of checklist in the back where I kind of say, look, here are the things you can be doing that help to support and improve those things and you can track it probably best through mood right so how am I feeling well actually the last two or three days haven't been great but actually a month ago that was four days where I didn't feel great mm. so I'm getting a little bit of an improvement and and again of course in the same way that you know people will go to their GP if their toe hurts right yeah But they'll sit on depression or they'll sit on sadness for weeks and weeks or months, maybe years, right? So it's this weird thing where your toe is considered more important than your brain or your emotional well-being. So I guess the other thing to say is just take it seriously. And if you've been feeling low or out of sorts... For more than a couple of weeks, because sometimes your brain does just mm. funny stuff, and sometimes you're just a bit low, and sometimes it's hormonal, or sometimes it's the weather, you know. Yeah,
0: sometimes there's, there are reasons mm. that are
1: really kind of easy to indicate as to why you feel that way. Yeah, absolutely, and it's probably worth saying that two of the big ones are hunger and tiredness, right? Yeah. So hunger tends to make you feel a little hungry. Yep, absolutely, and a little antsy, a little bit kind of distracted, a little bit you know unhappy, um, whereas poor sleep tends to make you a little bit more paranoid mm. and upregulate those senses of persecution so if you haven't slept well you're more likely to interpret someone's ambiguous statement or ambiguous facial expression mm. as critical or hostile or mean you're more likely to think so and so doesn't like me than when you're well slept and and that's really important right in in therapy so i'm if i sit with someone and they've um come back from the weekend and they said I've had a really bad weekend and I don't know why but I've just been feeling really low and like I'm not a good enough friend and I'm not really sure my friends like me if I'm not careful I can end up you know pursuing this idea that yeah maybe there's something terribly wrong with your relationships and maybe you've done something terribly wrong whereas if I'm checking first through the physiological stuff okay so uh, tell me how your sleep was over the weekend mm-hmm. then I might end up, you know, pursuing the wrong resolution, whereas I might instead be saying, "Okay, well, let's keep an eye on your sleep for the next week and then see how we feel and then we can track it that way. The same thing can happen with alcohol. Um, Often people can wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweats, panicky, stressed, anxious, and think, oh, maybe I've got an anxiety disorder, maybe I'm having a panic attack. But actually, if you've been drinking that night, that panicky response waking up in the night is actually a response to the withdrawal of alcohol from the from your system and so if you're not keeping track of those physiological things it can be very easy to mistake yeah what's a biological or physiological thing from a psychological thing so again that's one of the reasons why it's so important to have a proper assessment and to Mm. be able to talk about all of these overlapping features of your your brain health and the rest of your life,
0: but it's a nice reminder, at least to me again, of the fact that these things are so connected mm. because I think again, when we're struggling, we so often kind of go into like the panic mode and like we'll think about the big picture and oh my gosh, is there something so wrong instead of thinking like, you know, do you know what? I need to prioritize my sleep. I need to be going to bed early. I need to be getting eight hours. Maybe I shouldn't drink for a little bit. Maybe Mm -hmm. I should try and exercise in the morning before work. Maybe I should eat well. And I know it's easier said than done. Mm -hmm. Like I totally Mm -hmm. get that. I've definitely not been sleeping brilliantly with a tiny one, but I find that really interesting because again, I know, you know, for myself and I know for lots of friends, you know, Mm -hmm. close to me that I see when people are struggling with With not necessarily very serious depression, Mm -hmm. but just kind of low mood and Mm -hmm. and sort of ongoing levels of anxiety that we so often don't even look at those factors because also so often it's easier to run away from it. But sometimes you Mm -hmm. know sitting at home and going to bed early feels (laughs) you know does it you some it feels easier to push it away in some capacity rather than embrace it and Mm -hmm. do those things. But but what you're saying is that actually
1: they can be really really powerful, really powerful, and people under. Well, they either don't know or underestimate the impact of things like poor sleep, poor nutrition, a sedentary lifestyle on their brain health and therefore the functions of their brain, mood, decision making, uh, focus and attention and all those sorts of things.
0: Kimberly, this is me. I could keep you here for like hours and days. <laughs> the book How to Build a Healthy Brain is absolutely brilliant. I told you I knew Matt couldn't make this podcast and I, was sitting and I was reading it the last bit in the bath and I was like, cancel your meeting. Like you need to be here. You need to hear everything. She is amazing. So if you were going to give our listeners kind of three key things to take away, mm-hmm. if they were going to remember three things or tell
1: someone else three things from this episode, what would they be? Uh, I would say take your emotions seriously. Understand that your brain is made of food, so your nutrition is really important to your brain health. And don't ignore stress. Try and tackle stress as soon as you can amazing thank you so so much my for absolute pleasure thank you for having me
0: um we will be back again next tuesday and thank you guys so much for listening in if you did enjoy it please do rate it review it share it it makes all the difference and have a lovely lovely day don't be stressed